Well, thank you for being here tonight, braving the all-day rain, it seems like today, but uh, glad that you're in your place, and I appreciate the opportunity that your pastor has given me to come for these days, and uh, we thank the Lord for what He's doing in hearts and lives. And as I often say, the revival meetings will end tonight, but hopefully the revival will not. And uh, if revival has taken place in our life, uh, hopefully this is just the beginning of what God wants to do uh, through His Word in our life. I oftentimes hear messages, and uh, at the time I think, do I need that? And a couple of days later I realize I really do need that. And sometimes those truths uh, that we listen to and hear from God's Word are relevant at the time we hear them, but then often God is kind of storing it up for something we need a bit later, and I trust that will be the case uh, for this week. Well, take your Bible. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel and chapter 13. It's great to have Danny Wakefield and his family here tonight. They serve over at Buffalo Ridge over in Gray, and it's always nice to have some of our graduates uh, that are in the area, come by and say hello. So glad uh, that they're here tonight and uh, appreciate their testimony for the Lord. First Samuel chapter number 13. Read the first five verses and then we'll look at a few others close by in just a moment. The Bible says in verse 1 of First Samuel 13, Saul reigned one year. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And Jonathan smote a garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel also was had in abomination with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash eastward from beth -Avon. Israel, the land of Israel here, the army of Israel, finds itself in a situation where there's no human way to win. Saul, the leader of Israel's forces, is a man who has been raised in war from his youth. He knows what he's doing when it comes to fighting a battle. The Bible tells us that Saul stood head and shoulders above every man in Israel. He was a physically dominating man. He knew a lot about warfare. The Bible tells us here in verse number 1 and 2 that Saul had 3,000 men in his army on the Israeli side. The problem is, over on the Philistine side, in verse 5, it tells us the Philistines had 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and foot soldiers, and the Bible uses a term, uh, the sand on the sea or the stars of the sky. It's a, it's a term that would mean an innumerable number. So here's Israel. They've got 3,000 men ready to fight, but the opponent has 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and foot soldiers you can't even number. Now that's a battle that humanly you cannot win. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations much like that. We look at the, the side that we're on and the side of the opponent, whatever it might be, and we think there's no way to win this battle. 
It might be a physical battle. It might be a financial battle. It might be a relational battle. There are many battles or giants or enemies that we might face in the course of our Christian life. And oftentimes we look at the sides, it appears that we are far outnumbered, that we have no way to win. And we feel like we might as well surrender because there's no way to win. But I want you to jump ahead a little bit. Go to chapter 14 and look at verse number 6. This is an amazing verse in this battle. In chapter 14 and verse 6, And Jonathan, that would be Saul's son, Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there's no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Isn't that a great verse? Jonathan says, you know what? Let's go up. Let's, let's, let's take them on. Now, there's only two of them. We're going to learn where everybody else was in a moment. But there's Jonathan and his armor bearer. And Jonathan says, let's go into this battle. It could be that God will work on our behalf. Because with God, it doesn't matter what the odds are. It doesn't matter how many the opponent is. God is greater than all of that. Now, as I look at this particular battle between Israel and the Philistines, I look at Israel's army and I see three different types of soldiers here. Actually, four. Four different types of soldiers. And when I look at these, I often see myself in one of these categories. And I want to look at them tonight because three of them are what we ought not to be. And the fourth is where we should be as a soldier of Jesus Christ. God does describe our life in the Christian realm as a battle. It is a warfare. Uh, Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. He said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He tells us in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So we are in a battle tonight, and there are four different types of soldiers. The first one we find in verse number 6 of chapter 13, we find the fearful. In verse 6, the Bible says, When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed. Then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. There was a category of soldiers that when they saw this battle they were in, became fearful. Now, fear is a, an emotion that God has created us with. And if we went around the room tonight, all of us would admit, I suppose, that we are fearful of, of something. Uh, some people are afraid of heights. Uh, they just don't want to be up high somewhere. Some people are afraid of closed-in spaces. We, we'd call it maybe claustrophobia. Uh, some people, uh, you know, don't like uh, uh, dark. they they, they got to have a light on. You know, they, they don't like darkness. I don't like snakes. Now, people say, oh, it's, that's a harmless snake. I, I'm not going to hang around long enough to find out if it is or isn't. I just don't like snakes. And, and I have a fear of snakes. I, I don't like them. Uh, I put a snake on this platform, I'm getting off the platform. I just, I don't like snakes. And I'm sure that there's something probably that you would have a fear about. Now, sometimes fear is a good thing. 
Sometimes fear makes us cautious or, or, or it makes us hesitant to just plunge ahead into something. Uh, the prudent man looketh well to his going. Sometimes we, we, we see a certain aspect of life. And we say, oh, it doesn't look right. That, that scares me a little bit. I, I think we better hold back. And so fear can be a good thing. But often the devil loves to prey on our fears. It's interesting in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, it's interesting there that the Bible uses this metaphor to describe Satan as a roaring lion. In other words, Satan is not a lion. He's not a, he's not a roaring lion. He's as a roaring lion. Now, I don't know everything there is to know about lions by a long shot, but I do know this. When a lion is hungry, he doesn't roar. When a lion is hungry, he's very quiet. A lion kind of gets down in some, some tall grass. He kind of slithers and slinks his way up toward a, a, a herd of, of prey, and he waits for that moment to spring on maybe one that's a little bit uh, delinquent from the crowd or maybe a little bit young or maybe, maybe is hurt a little bit. That lion springs out of nowhere onto its prey. A lion roars to intimidate and the Bible says the devil is as a roaring lion. He loves to intimidate us. And he intimidates us with certain kinds of fears. Sometimes he uses the fear of family. I think your pastor would concur with this, that oftentimes when a person first gets saved, the people that we would expect them to be most encouraging are often the people that become enemies. It's like they become critical of their, their new faith in Christ. A person gets saved and now they want to come to church and family members will say, you're, you're not going to become a fanatic or something, are you? I mean, you're not going to join a cult or something, are you? And oftentimes family rejects someone when they get saved or when they, when they try to do what's right. But you know, I'm glad that the Bible says in Psalm 27, 10, when my father and mother forsook me, then the Lord took me up. Now, aren't you glad there is a friend that sticketh closer than even a brother? And while family is very important to us, I'm glad that God is, is even greater than those family members that we may have who oppose us, who become uh, uh, the enemies of our own house. Then the devil sometimes uses the fear of friends. Now, all of us need friends. It's scientifically proven that all of us need some close friendships in our life, and friendships are very valuable to us. But again, the devil sometimes makes us think that if we do what's right or if we live a certain way, that our friends are going to reject us or they're going to laugh at us or, or perhaps uh, uh, make fun of us. But again, I'm glad that the Bible says the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be made safe. Many seek the ruler's favor, but every man's judgment cometh from the Lord. Sometimes the devil uses the fear of finances. The devil loves to make us think that we're missing out on something in life by following the Lord. He makes us think that, oh, you poor Christians, you can't do this, you can't do that, and man, you're really missing out. I mean, there's a lot of people having fun and, and living it up in this world, and you, you, just, you just can't do anything. You don't have anything. You're never going to have anything. The devil makes us think that our choice is between pleasure and misery. I remember when I was a youngster, I, I used to think, I know God wants my life. I, I, I know he wants me to serve him, but I was afraid that if I gave my life to God, he'd call me to be a missionary. 
And I, I didn't want to be a missionary. And I thought, he, he, God will call me to some place like Africa. And I don't want to live in Africa. I thought if I live in Africa, I'll have to live in like a mud hut or something. And snakes will crawl over me at night while I sleep. And I'll have to eat boiled baboon for supper, you know. And my neighbors will be these little short people that boil things in pots, particularly Caucasian missionaries. And I thought, I don't, I don't want to do that. And I thought that my choice was between pleasure and misery. I thought, if I serve the Lord, I'm going to be miserable. It'll be right, but I'll be miserable. And I thought, if I, if I go my own way and, and, and kind of have uh, some things in the world, and I'll be happy. But you know, our choice is not between pleasure and misery. Our choice is between pleasure and pleasure. See, what we have to decide is how long we want the pleasure to last. Because there is pleasure in sin for a season. But God says at my right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So the choice is between pleasure and pleasure. You just have to decide, do I want pleasure for a season? Seasons come and go. And the pleasures of this world, oh, there are people out tonight having a party someplace, having a big time. But, but it won't last. There'll be some after effects that they'll regret. That season can be pretty short. But God says, my pleasures are forever. And so the devil loves us to think, oh, you're missing out. You're not going to have anything in life if you serve me. And he brings that, that, that pressure or that, that, that roar against us with finances or fun. But you know, God says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. You're complete in him. I am your all and in all. Sometimes the devil likes to roar the fear of failure. He makes us think, well, hey, you can't serve God. I mean, look what you used to do. Look, look what you were before you got saved. Or look what you've thought about after you got saved. I mean, the God can't use you. You're a nobody. You, you, you've messed up. You, 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 you've, you've done things that God can never use you. He loves to throw the past up in our face and cause us to think that we cannot go forward for Christ. I like what Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark of the prize, the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Did you know that most of your Bible was written by murderers? Moses was a murderer. Exodus chapter 2, he killed that Egyptian man. Yet God used him to write the first five books in the Bible. David was a murderer. David, David ordered Joab to put Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, at the forefront of that battle and retire from him. David had Uriah's blood on his hands. And yet, after David's confession of sin in Psalm 51, God used him to write many of our psalms. And then you have Paul. Paul was a murderer before his conversion. Yet God used Paul to write the bulk of our New Testament epistles. Now, I'm not advocating murder tonight. Don't get any ideas. You know, I, I, yeah, I got somebody in mind. Maybe God will use me. If I, no, what shall we say then? Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. In other words, we don't sin to get grace, but aren't you glad that grace is always greater than our sin? The devil wants us to think that sin has messed us up, it's destroyed us. Remember, Satan is an accuser of the brethren. He doesn't go around accusing lost people of something. He accuses saved people of something. And he tries to intimidate us with these fears. But you know what God says? Fear not. I'm with thee. Be not dismayed. I am thy God. 
I'll strengthen thee. I'll help thee. I'll uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. You see, uh, God has not given us the spirit of fear, 2 Timothy 1, 7, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. As John said, there's no fear in love because perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. Here were the fearful. But I see a second group. I would call them the flabby. Look at... Uh, Chapter 14 and verse number 2. The Bible says, And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron, and the people that were with him were about 600 men. Now, this is the same battle going on here. These 3,000 soldiers on Israel's side, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and foot soldiers you can't even number. And Saul, the leader of the Israel side in the midst of this battle, is nowhere near the battle scene. He's over in Migron under a pomegranate tree, sipping iced tea with 600 of his men. Flabby. You know, it's amazing. Sometimes we're not against the battle that we're in. We're, 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 we hope we win. Uh, oftentimes, we're, we're not against what the church is doing. We want the church to go forward. We, we, we want people to be saved. We want people to be baptized. We want folks to come in and join our fellowship in the church. We, we, we want uh, the church to, to, to have victories. But don't ask me to be a part of it. I'll just watch. I'll just applaud from the sideline. I'll cheer you on. Don't ask me to roll up my sleeves and get involved. I'm afraid a lot of times as Christians in this battle that we're in, we become spectators rather than participants. But God didn't save us to sit, soak, and sour. He saved us to stand, to strive, and to serve. And so many times we become flabby in our Christian life. We think, well, I've done my part. Let somebody else serve in that area. Or I, you know, I've already uh, done my time and get someone else involved. Or we just kind of want to sit back. But God says, go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler. Interesting, those three words in the Old Testament, guide, overseer, or ruler, are words that God uses to describe the pastor in the New Testament. But the ant doesn't have a pastor. The ant doesn't have a pastor ant that stands up on Sunday. All right, ants, we've got to get busy this week. Got to get some food in here. No, the ant just knows by instinct they've got to get busy. They've got to be busy. Winter's coming. They don't have a guide, overseer, or ruler, but they provide their meat in the summer and they gather their food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou rise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth and thy wants as an armed man. Solomon said, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there's no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. You see, we're to occupy until he comes. There's no place for us to kind of just sit back and rest on our laurels. We must serve in these days. We cannot afford to be flabby. And by the way, there's a place for everybody to serve. Now, God has gifted us differently. God has given us different gifts and talents within the church. Not everybody does the same thing. But there's a place for everyone to serve. I was preaching in Douglas, Wyoming years ago, and 
there was a man in the church who would conduct a, a, a service for the folks in the retirement center across the street from the church. Every Sunday afternoon, he'd go over there and, and conduct a service. And that was his ministry. And he, he saw a lot of people saved over there and people that uh, began growing in the Lord. Well, when the revival came around, he thought, you know, some of those people could come if I would go get them. It'd just be a matter of wheeling them across the street in their wheelchair and bringing them to the service. So he began to bring some of those people every night. He'd bring two or three of them. And one night he brought a lady. She didn't look extremely old to me at the time. She, she seemed actually in pretty good health, but it was obvious she was paralyzed over much of her body. She was in a wheelchair. And he brought her in and he set her in the center aisle next to he and his wife. And he kind of locked her wheelchair there and she sat right in the middle. And, and I noticed her as I preached and she was listening very carefully. When I gave the invitation, she looked up at the man that brought her, and he, she said, uh, I want to go up there. Well, he stepped out, and he unlocked her wheelchair, and he brought her forward. And I remember she got to the front, and she said to the pastor, Pastor, I need to be saved. Well, the pastor's wife came, and, and uh, she was wonderfully saved that night. The next night, she came back, and uh, as she was going out that evening after the second service that she attended, she shook my hand, and then she shook the pastor's hand. And she said, Pastor, now I got saved last night. He said, yes, and we're so excited for you. We're so thankful for that. She said, I, I need to be baptized now. And she said, would you baptize me? And the pastor, he never hesitated. He said, why, of course. He said, I'd be honored to. He said, the way we do it here is we, we normally have baptism on Sunday nights, and and uh, we get the water prepared and everything. And then Sunday night, you, the people come a little bit early and they, they share their testimony with the deacons. And you would, you would tell them how you got saved last night and trusted Christ. Now you want to follow him in obedience and, and they'll hear your testimony. And then we can baptize you. And he said, uh, I can get a couple of deacons to help me and we can carry you down into the baptistry in your wheelchair if you'd like. And we can baptize you right in your chair. How would that be? She said, oh, that'd be wonderful. She said, can we do this this Sunday night? She's, he said, well, sure, we'll, we'll plan on it. Then she looked at him and she said, now, now, pastor, after I get baptized and join the church, I want to serve in the nursery. I looked at this lady and thought, work in the nursery? You're in a wheelchair. I mean, I know people who are in wheelchairs from working in the nursery. This lady was already in a wheelchair. <laughs> And the pastor, he must have had the same kind of shocked expression on his face. And she kind of pointed her finger at him. She said, you don't think I'm too decrepit, do you? He said, oh, no, 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 we'll get you in there. Now, don't you love that spirit? Here was a lady that quite honestly, all of us would have been thrilled if all she did was got saved. We would have understood that maybe she would be hesitant about, about getting baptized or, or, or becoming a part of some, some ministry in the church. We would have just been glad for her to come. But you know what? When God saves us, he puts within us a desire to serve. And it's not all in the same way. I was in a church recently and they had a soul winning program. I think it was on Thursday nights and people would come and go out. And the pastor told me, he said, you know, Brother Getz, we, we've got some older people in our congregation and uh, it's hard for them to go out soul winning and knock on a door or go make a visit. Very difficult for them. Some are widows and and he said, uh, they don't drive anymore. And he said, I I'd preach on soul winning. I'd encourage our people to go soul winning. And these, these older folks, they got together one night and they, they cornered me. And they said, Pastor, we're supposed to be witnessing. 
But we can't go door to door. We can't, we can't make visits. We don't drive anymore. But they said, can we come to the church on Thursday night and go in a room and write letters and write in those letters the gospel and then would you mail those letters to people in our community? And he showed me how that thing worked and they had just taken a phone book and they, they got these addresses and those people every Thursday night would come and write out the gospel and then they would mail those letters. You see, when God is at work in our hearts, we want to serve. And we can't always do it just like the guy that sits next to us or the guy in front of us or behind us, but God has given us a desire to serve. And yet here were people who had become flabby. So we see the fearful, we see the flabby, then we see the fickle. Go to verse 21 of chapter 14, and I'm going to kind of pluck a verse out of the context here in a minute, and I promise we'll come back and catch it up. But, but look at verse 21. It says, Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. Now, we'll catch up with this in a minute, but what had happened was, some of these Israel soldiers, they looked at the Philistines and they said, you know what? If you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> so they went AWOL. They switched sides. And they left the Israel army and they went over and joined the Philistines. But now, by the end of chapter 14, God is winning the victory for the Israelites. And so as they saw the victory going over to the Israelite side, they came back over to Israel. Fickle. In the sports world, we call them fair-weather fans. You know, as long as your team is winning, oh, yeah, it's my team, man. They start losing, you go, I don't care for sports, really. Right? Fickle. Fickle. When I first moved to the Los Angeles area, everybody was a Lakers fan. I mean, everybody was a Lakers fan. I don't like the Lakers. I don't like them at all. Sometimes I watch a Lakers game. My wife says, why are you watching them? I didn't think you liked the Lakers. I said, I'm watching to see them lose. I don't like the Lakers. And, uh, but yeah, Laker fans are everywhere. You know, the last couple of years, you can't find a Lakers fan anywhere. You know why? Because they're horrible. They're terrible. Even with LeBron James, they're in 10th place. Not even going to make the playoffs. They're horrible. You can't find Laker fans. Southern California fans are fickle. They're fickle. Teams winning, oh yeah, Dodgers fan. Oh yeah, I'm for the Clippers or whatever. Teams lose, nah, I don't go to sports games. Just fickle. But you know, I find that happening in my life sometimes. If God's blessing me and God's been good to me and things are going well, oh yeah, boy, I love God. Then a little trial comes. A little difficulty comes. Uh, Lord, I'm not real excited about serving you today. Fickle. You know, God didn't save us to be thermometer Christians. If you take a thermometer and hang it on that wall over there, it'll reveal the temperature in this room. You don't need any batteries. You don't need a power source. You just hang it on the wall, and it reveals the temperature in the room. Now, if you're going to change the temperature in the room, you need a thermostat. Now, a thermostat requires power. You've got to have batteries. You've got to have an outlet. But that thermostat will control the atmosphere in that room. You know, a lot of Christians are thermometer Christians. Whatever's kind of the, the way of Christianity at the time, that's kind of the way they live. They just sort of reflect what everybody else is. But if you're going to make a difference in this world, you've got to be different. 
You can't make a difference without being different. And God commanded us to be a thermostat. He said, hey, let me set the temperature for your life. Let me set the control. And you go out and influence this world for Christ. So often we're just content to kind of be in and out. Paul said, no, you preach in season, out of season. Uh, When it's convenient, when it's not convenient. You be faithful. I love what he said about the church at Philippi. He said, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You know, does pastor have to be looking over our shoulder for us to serve the Lord? Or are we faithful even when pastor's gone or pastor's not here? Or, 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 or there's no one really watching us, maybe at the workplace or in school or wherever we might find ourselves. Are we still being faithful? Or are we fickle? We see the fearful. We see the flabby. We see the fickle. But I want you to see what God desires from us, and that's to be faithful. Look at chapter 14 now, and let's tie this all together. Look at verse number 4 of 1 Samuel 14. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sina. The forefront of the one was situate northward over against Michmash, and the other southward over against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to say by many or by few. And his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee. Behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Now, we must pause there for just a moment and reflect on this armor bearer for a minute. This is one of the no-namers in the Bible. We don't know his name. He's just called the armor bearer of Jonathan. Jonathan says to this armor bearer, let's go in. Let's see what God will do. And this armor bearer doesn't hesitate. He says, do all that's in thine heart. I'm with thee. Why don't you like that? You know, I've never been the pastor of a church. I've never pastored a church. I have no desire to pastor a church. They asked Paul Levine one time if he had pastored a church. He said, no. They said, have you ever wanted to be a pastor? He said, no. They said, why not? He said, because I never met a pastor I didn't feel sorry for. (laughs) That's kind of the way I feel about it. I've never been a pastor. I've never baptized anybody. I don't have any authority to baptize anybody. I'm an evangelist. The pastor oversees the ordinances of the church. I've never baptized anybody in 45 years of ministry. Now, my wife and I have been members of a Baptist church all of our lives, all of our married life. We've been a member of a Baptist church. We've been in three different churches. Currently, Pastor Chapel is our pastor. We're members of Lancaster Baptist Church. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. As a church member, talking to a church member, I don't always understand everything Pastor Chapel decides to do. Sometimes he leads our church to do things I'm thinking, oh boy. Several years ago, we we needed a gym. We've been praying for a gym for a long time. We had a little gym. We called it the little gym. We could could get about 400 people in there for a basketball game and and, uh, we could have part of our student body come for the first quarter and some would come the next quarter because they couldn't all get in there. And uh, we just needed a gym. We prayed and we began to plan and draw up plans, you know, but man, this thing was going to cost like four and a half million dollars to build what we wanted to build. 
And we didn't have any money. And at the time, you know, unemployment was high and, and uh, people were losing their jobs and people were moving away. And, and it just, it, the timing just wasn't right. So we kept praying and we kept praying. And finally, after about 10 years of praying, one day pastor said, I got the green light. We need to build that building. And I remember thinking, not now. The price had gone up to $8 million. We still didn't have any money. Unemployment was 17% in Lancaster. We had 42 families in our church at that time without work. We fed them donuts and coffee every Monday morning and prayed for them. It was the worst possible time. But pastor said, I believe this is the time. And I remember thinking, whoa, I don't know. But you know what our people said? Pastor, if that's what God's led you to do, let's go. And we started building what we call the Walther Center. It's 54,000 square feet. When we finished it, it cost $11.5 million. And it's all paid for. And as far as I know, nobody in our church is out of a job. And we have over 800 jobs on our job board for our students. You know, you won't always understand how God leads your pastor. But I love the example of this armor bearer. In faith, let's go. That, that's a testimony. Now, that puts a lot of pressure on your pastor. That's why you got to pray for him. That's why you encourage him. Because he has to make some of those decisions that God trusts him with for the church. And he, he wants God's mind. And, and, and so you pray for him. But, but, but he'll, God will lead the church through the pastor, through the shepherd, the under shepherd. And, and as sheep, we need, we need to be faithfully supporting that vision that God gives him. Well, what happens here? The arbor says, let's go. Well, look at verse number eight. Because I'm sure the question the armor bear had was, okay, I'm with you. What are we going to do? Look at verse eight. Then said Jonathan, behold, we will pass over unto these men and we will discover ourselves under them. So just think about this. Jonathan says to this armor bearer, uh, let's go to these uncircumcised. Let's see what God will do. Okay, I'm with you. What's the plan? Well, we're going to stand up and let them see us. We're going to do what now? We're going to stand up and let them see us. Can I change my vote? <laughs> you know? I mean, you don't, Jonathan, you don't have a laser weapon in your back robe or, you know, reinforcements coming over the hill. We're going to just stand up and let them see us. Yep, that's what we're going to do. Wow. Well, verse 9. If they say thus unto us, Jonathan's still speaking, tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place. We will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, come up unto us, then we'll go up. For the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this should be a sign unto us. Did you know that Gideon is not the only person in the Bible that threw out a fleece? This is a major fleece. What Jonathan is saying is, is I'm, I'm leaving this completely in God's hands. We're going to stand up, and when they see us, if they say, halt, don't move, we're going back down. God's not in it. But if they say, hey, you, come here, we're going in. 
The Lord's given them to us. And this will be the sign. Does this, does this sort of resemble faith? I mean, it's completely out of their hands. It's all in God's hands. That's what faith is, isn't it? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Well, what happens? Verse number 11, And both of them discovered themselves under the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they had hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us. We'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. Wow. Jonathan said, let's go. God did exactly what I asked. They're done. Put the W in the wind column. We got them. Put a fork in them. They're done. We got this. You see faith here. This amazing faith. Well, verse 13, and Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew after him. And that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men within, as it were, a half acre of land, which the yoke of oxen might plow. Hey, I'm pretty impressed with this. Jonathan takes a sword. He goes in and he kills 20 of these Philistines with the sword in, a, in an area about a half acre. That's pretty impressive. I'd like to see video of that. He goes in and one guy takes out 20. That, that's pretty impressive. By the way, God will let you do what he has gifted you to do. Jonathan had been trained in warfare. His dad was, was a warrior. And Jonathan knew how to fight. He knew how to use a sword. And, and God let him use it here. By the way, God will use your gifts. He'll use your talents. That's why he gave them to you. He wants you to use them. So Jonathan goes in. He kills 20 of these guys. It's impressive. The only problem is there's still 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and... 20 less people than the sand on the sea. <laughs> so what happens? Well, remember, it may be God will work for us. The Bible says in verse 15, and there was a trembling in the host, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled, and the earth quaked. So it was a very great trembling. Now that's something you and I can't do. We can't produce an earthquake. Only God could do that. And he did. In verse 16, the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went on beating down one another. Then Saul said unto the people that were with him, Number now, and see who is gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said unto Ahiah, Bring hither the ark of God, for the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. And it came to pass, while Saul talked unto the priest, that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And Saul said unto the priest, Withdraw thine hand. God wins an amazing victory here by bringing this earthquake. And the Philistines got so confused in the middle of this earthquake, they started beating up each other and killed each other. And Israel wins the victory. Because of the faith of two men. but I know how we think. We think, God, that's a great story. Thanks for that. That was exciting. But I just, I just don't have the energy to do this all by myself. I mean, what, a, what about all the people that, that have defected? I mean, what about the people that have left the church? What, if everybody that got saved in this church would come once in a while, we'd have a, we'd have a big crowd. You know, and what about them? I mean, do I have to do everything? I mean, I got to work in the nursery. I got to run the sound. I got to, I got to sing the special. I, got, I mean, do I have to do it all? I mean, where's everybody else? And sometimes we, we get discouraged 
Because personally, we might have some faith or we might try to lead our family in faith. But what about everybody else? That's kind of human nature to wonder that. But look what happens. Look at verse 20. And Saul and all the people who were with him assembled themselves and they came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow and there was a very great discomfiture. Guess who comes back to the battle once the battle is won? Here came the flabby. Saul and those 600 men, they saw what God was doing and they came back. And then verse 21, we already read it. Now we've caught up with it. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. Here came the fickle back to the battle. And then verse 22, likewise, all the men of Israel, which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard the Philistines fled, even they also followed harder after them in the battle. Here came the fearful. You see, when... When one person, when a couple people step out in faith and trust God and believe God, God takes care of everybody else. God does a work in everybody's heart when somebody says, you know what, I'm going to have some faith. I told you when I was a teenager, I, I knew God was working in my heart. I grew up in church. I started going to church nine months before I was born and pretty much went, you know. <laughs> All the time, my parents were the janitors, so we went even when the doors weren't open. <laughs> and, and I grew up in church, and, and I heard messages on surrender and give your life to God and serve God. And, 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 and I, wasn't, I wasn't against any of that, but, but not for me. Now, I, I didn't want to go live in the world. I didn't want to go, you know, do all the things that were sinful and ruin my life. That, that's not what I wanted. I just wanted to serve me. I just wanted to be happy and wanted to do the things that I enjoyed doing. And God had to, had to do some things in my life to correct my course. In my senior year in high school, he put me in the hospital for three months, unable to move. I came within five seconds of losing my life. And that's a long story I won't bore you with. But basically, God was saying to me, I'm giving you a chance. Do what you need to do. And I began to run. Those, those things caused you to become bitter or better. And I got more bitter. And it was finally on August 1st of the summer after my senior year in high school, I was trying to get back into shape to take my football scholarship. And I, was, I went from sitting on the edge of the bed five seconds a day to working out 17 hours a day to try to play football again. And I was playing baseball. My doctor didn't know I was, but I was, I was, I was working at trying to get back into condition so I could take this scholarship. But the coach was saying, you know, we're going to have to pull it, and if you get your health back next year, we can, you know, reinstate it. But, you know, it's too late. You know, practices start. we got to go on. So I had applied at a technical school in Madison, Wisconsin. To I'd taken some tests and data processing. had passed all the tests, but I had not been accepted. And the classes started in two weeks. And we were playing this baseball game, and one of my friends, who was not, not a Christian, his name was Larry, but he was a good friend. We were walking off the field after the game, and he said to me, he said, John, where are you going to college? And I said, Larry, I don't know. I don't know if I'm even going. It was still Vietnam War, and I thought about just signing up, you know, and going. I, my draft lottery number was, was not picked, but I could still volunteer. You know, I thought about that. And uh, I said, I, I don't know, Larry. I, 
I took the tests at Madison Tech and I passed everything. They told me I passed everything, but I, I, I haven't gotten a letter of acceptance. And classes start in two weeks. I, I guess I'm not going anywhere. And this unsafe friend stopped in his tracks. I can still see us out there in right field, walking off that field. And he looked at me and he said, well, you could always go to Maranatha. And that hit me like a brick. Maranatha was a Bible college in my hometown. Started my sophomore year in high school. I hated that place. My sister was a student there. And I, I, I hated that place. When they started, they had 211 students, and they were all on the streets witnessing to my friends. And then they'd come back to school and say, hey, Getch, you're a Baptist. Do you believe like those kids up at Marijuana Baptist Bible College? <laughs> they couldn't say Maranatha, so they called it Marijuana. But anyway, <laughs> and it put pressure on me, and I didn't like that. And when he said that, I, I, I don't think I responded to it at all. I just kept walking toward my car. I remember getting in my car and, and sitting there for a minute. I thought, Lord, this is crazy. I, I know what you want, and I know what my pastor wants, and I know what my parents want. But now my unsaved friends are telling me to go to Bible college. And I remember sitting in that car and I thought, okay, God, I'll make you a deal. I'll go up there tomorrow to Maranatha and I'll put in an application. And I've already got one in at Madison Tech. If whichever one comes back first, that's where I'll go. So I made a deal. So the next morning I went up to Maranatha, walked in there. Academic Dean was in the hallway. He said, John, what can I do for you? I said, I'd like an application. He said, to what? <laughs> I was not a hot prospect for Bible college. I said, the college. He goes, oh. So I filled it out, paid my money or whatever. Two days later, went to the mailbox, two letters, one from Madison Tech, one from Maranatha. They both accepted me. And God said, I don't do deals. You know what I want. Either do it or I'm going to kill you. And he'd come within five seconds. I knew he was serious and I like living. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll go to Maranatha. I didn't want to go to Maranatha, but I said, I'll go. Well, now I had to tell my parents. Now, that wasn't going to be difficult in the sense of resistance. I knew they'd be all for it. My dad was chairman of the deacons, 36 years. I mean, my mother was a Sunday school teacher. My sister was the church pianist uh, in high school. I was president of the youth group when I was 15. I mean, we were a, we were a family in the church. I mean, they, I knew that would not be a problem to them. I just, I, I didn't want them to get all emotional. I didn't want any tears, no hugs, just, okay, I'm going to Bible college, bye. That's what I wanted, you know, just leave me alone. I don't want, I don't want to hear a speech. So I thought, what am I going to tell him? What am I going to tell him? Well, one day we were in the car. I don't remember what the occasion was, but my dad was driving. My mom was in the front seat. I was sitting behind my dad. My brother, nine years younger than me, he was in the back seat on the other side. We were driving down Main Street, going west in Watertown, Wisconsin, and we were stopped at a stop and go light at 4th Street. And the light was red. My dad was driving the car. He had his hands on the steering wheel at the 10 and 2 position. He was staring at the light, waiting for it to turn green. My mother was in the front seat, passenger side, sitting in kind of the meek and mild position, as I called it. She had her hands folded in her lap. She was slightly tilted toward my dad, looking straight ahead. I was sitting behind my dad. We didn't have to wear seatbelts in those days, but I'm sitting behind my dad. My brother's over here. I don't know what he was doing. I didn't pay any attention to him in those days. And so I thought this is a good time to tell him because we're in public. 
you know, we're in the car. They can't get to me. There's a seat there. And they're not going to get out of the car because we're right in the middle of town. And so I thought, this is, this is it. This is the moment. So I kind of I leaned forward and I said, uh, Dad, Mom, I'm going to go to Bible college. My dad never flinched. Just stared at the light. My mother never moved. Just remained in the beacon mile position. I thought, well, they didn't hear me. So I, I screwed up in the seat a little bit. I leaned a little bit further forward and I said, Dad, Mom, I'm, I'm going to go to Bible college. My dad. My mom. I thought, are these people deaf? I grabbed the front seat. I pulled myself up between them and I said, Dad, Mom, I'm going to Bible college. My dad. My mom turned her head maybe a half an inch, just enough to make eye contact with me. And she said, John, we already knew that. We've been praying for that for years. I slumped back in that seat. I thought, I never had a chance. I never had a chance. You know why I'm here? 49 years later, not because of my faith, I had none. None. I had no faith in myself that I could ever serve God. None. I am here tonight because of the faith of somebody else. Now, my question is, who's going to sit in this row a year from now because of yours? Who's that wayward son or daughter that's going to come back to God because of yours? Who's that neighbor that's going to get saved because of your faith? Listen, God honors faith. And when one person like Jonathan steps out, look what God does around him to bring about a great victory. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we need is a great victory? Boy, let's be the right kind of soldier. It's easy to be fearful. It's easy to get flabby. It's real easy to be fickle. It takes God to be faithful. But with his help, we can be because he's faithful. 